Our text this morning is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Have you found it? All right. This is God's holy word for us. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Pray with me, please. Father, help us to be a church that walks in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Teach us to do that in your word today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. All right. I want you to consider with me a very important question. It's only two words, but it's a good question. So what? So what asks just what is it that I'm supposed to think or do because of the thing that you've told me? For example, if you tell me it's going to rain, you are probably giving me more than a simple piece of meteorological data, right? You're giving me information that you hope will influence me to grab an umbrella or put on a raincoat or not to plan the picnic for that day. If you tell me somebody looks sad, you're probably doing more than telling me about their face, right? You're trying to motivate me to go over and find out what's the matter. There is always a so what to what you tell me. There is a response you want me to have. And in the letters of the Apostle Paul in the Bible, we can often find a a pattern. Paul will open a letter with an explanation of the gospel and its effects on us. And he wants his readers to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then, once the gospel is clear, Paul writes to the church the so what. He will write about things that they should do in the light of what they've learned Paul follows that pattern in Romans. You see it start in chapter 12. In Colossians, you see it at the break between chapters 2 and 3. And for sure, right here in the book of Ephesians. Now let's summarize where we've been. We've been off of Ephesians for a couple of weeks. And then we can get to the ways that God wants us to respond. The book of Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison in the city of Rome, probably somewhere between AD 60 and 62. And while there's little doubt this letter was supposed to go to Ephesus, it also looks like a general epistle. It was intended for many of the churches in the region of Asia Minor. And Paul sent this letter out, it would have been carried even at the same time as the letters to the Colossians and to Philemon. Now, we've already worked through 11 sermons in this letter so far. Does that number surprise you, by the way? Feel about right? All right. We began this series on September 15th of last year. And here we are, halfway point of the book, and I would expect that we'll, Lord willing, be able to finish sometime around the month of May. So what have we seen so far in Ephesians? In chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, Paul began by praising God for choosing us for salvation 
and for God's eternal plan. And part of that eternal plan includes that both Jews and Gentiles find salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Then Paul goes on from uh, verses 15 to 23 of chapter one to tell the Ephesians that he prays for them, that they would grasp the great glories of the gospel. In chapter two, verses one through 10, Paul detailed the individual implications of the gospel. Paul said that we were dead in our sins, but God made us alive with Christ and seated us with Christ in heaven. And Paul points out that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works, but resulting in good works. And then chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, Paul addresses the corporate dimension of salvation. God saves, again, both Jews and Gentiles in Christ, bringing these two groups together into one new family, one holy temple, one new nation under God. Then chapter 3, Paul is going to tell the Ephesians of of a prayer of his for them, but he first takes a minute to remind them of his special calling, his ministry to communicate the mysterious plan of God to unite Jews and Gentiles into the one family of God. That's 1 to 13 of chapter 3. Then in verses 14 through 19 of chapter 3, Paul finally writes the prayer and he asks that God, again, help the people have the perfect power of God to understand the glories and greatness of the gospel. And then Paul ends the prayer in 20 and 21 with a beautiful doxology, a proclamation of praise to God. Does that sound like where we've been? Okay, because I don't want it to go over it again. Now, we open chapter four and we read verse one. Paul has a command to issue. Based on what he's already told the Ephesians about the gospel, about the grace of God, about the glorious mystery of Christ, based on the fact that Paul himself is an apostle and a man suffering imprisonment for the faith, Paul has a command, an answer to the so what question. Look at 4.1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul urges the people who read this letter. That would have been the Ephesians. That would have been the folks from the other cities around Ephesus like Colossae and Laodicea and Smyrna and Thyatira. Paul urges people like you and me reading this letter nearly two millennia later, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Paul is asking that you and I learn to live lives that fit the calling to which we have been called by Christ. The first half of the book told us about the gospel, told us about this glorious calling. Now Paul is going to start telling us how to walk in a way that befits what God has done in Christ. So Christians, this ought to be giving you and me pause from the very inception of this idea. The gospel of Jesus Christ is glorious. Yes? Yes. Being saved is an amazing thing. Yes? Yes? And if we think about how God saved us, by grace, through faith, in Christ, apart from works, into the family, into the people of God, those thoughts should lead us somewhere. 
Because God has done this wonderful stuff for us and to us, the question you should be asking is, because God has done this, what kind of person ought I to be? How do I live? How do I think differently because of Jesus Christ? So let's get ready to start seeing what it means, Christians, that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And I'll give you a hint for today's passage. We're called to genuine Christian unity. We're called to unity. If you're a note taker, make room for five main points this morning, and they're going to help us to develop a unifying character. Look at verses two and three. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Our first point, humility. Humility. You could write be humble if you think it needs to be an instruction. With all humility. That's the first attribute that Paul chooses to give us to mark the life of a Christian walking worthy of the calling. What then does it mean to be humble? The word for humility here is a word that means lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. It's an interesting term, actually, if you study it, because humility, lowliness of mind, was not used in the Greek-speaking culture around Israel as a positive thing. To both the Greeks and the Romans, humility was not thought of as a virtue, but as a weakness. But in the biblical understanding, humility is a godly attribute. The idea of being humble, of being lowly in your mind, it's that a true follower of Jesus will not think of himself or herself more highly than we should. Neither will we think of ourselves more often than we should. Many of you are probably familiar with that little hymn in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, right? It says, uh, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself, or but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is that familiar to y'all? That's, we know that passage. When we read a passage like that, we usually will use it to study the attributes of Jesus. Jesus is God who lowered himself to become a man. Jesus is God who became a man and sacrificed himself on a cross for the sins of all God would save. But if you look at that passage in context in Philippians 2, do you realize that that beautiful teaching is actually an illustration of the point Paul's trying to make? In verses 1 through 4 of Philippians 2, Paul is calling the people of Philippi to humility. And then he points out that being humble looks like what Jesus did. Listen to the beginning of Philippians 2 before the familiar passage. 
Philippians 2, 1 through 4 reads, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any, fellow, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul tells the people, if you have any hope and comfort and change in your life because of the gospel, you should live differently toward one another. You should be unselfish. You should consider other people more important. You should lower the thinking you have for yourself and heighten your caring for the things, the needs, the, 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 the good of others. Then Paul says, this looks like Jesus who humbled, who humbled himself, who came to earth, who died for our sins, who rose from the grave and is now exalted to the highest place. The opposite of humility like that is an ungodly pride or selfishness. When you and I are most sinful is when we somehow place ourselves at the center of the universe. When we think that the person in the mirror is the most important being that there is, we are in a desperately dangerous and sinful place. So how do you know, Christian, if you're humble? Well, how important do you think you are? How often do you think that other people should do things your way? How often do you think that things ought to be structured to your particular liking? How often do you think that you know how everything ought to go and everybody else around you is out to lunch? How often do you assume that whatever the people around you are thinking is somehow focused on you? You ever notice that, by the way, when you are the least humble? You think that everybody around you must be thinking something about you. Can I tell you a secret? They're not. Now be careful. It is easy to miss signs of pride. For example, a person might say that they're not prideful because they're always down on themselves. You know any people that are always down on themselves? But a person who swims around in self-pity, they assume, oh, pride cannot be my besetting sin. But any honest assessment will show you that both the braggadocious man and the self-pitying man are both guilty of the same sin. The braggart says to himself, look at me, I'm so great. Everybody sees how great I am, or they should see how great I am. Look at me, think about me. The self-pitying man in sorrow and tears says, nobody appreciates me. I do so much and nobody cares. Nobody sees me. Nobody wants me. Both men are thinking about themselves. One person is flaunting himself, the other is upset that nobody actually appreciates his true greatness. But I'll tell you what, 
no matter how you slice it, both men are thinking a whole lot about themselves and not caring for others. Both are focused on how they appear. You know, my wife will illustrate pride to our children uh, like this. She'll say, I want you to imagine you have a, a treasure chest for your life. The thing in the treasure box is the thing that's most important to you. And only one thing can rightly go in the box. If we shape our lives so that God is our treasure, we do well. But we get in trouble when, for whatever reason, we put ourselves in the treasure box. I mean, after all, if you put yourself in the treasure box, you can't have God there. So if I stand up and I demand to have all of my preferences met, I am putting myself as the treasure. I sin against God. If I weep in self-pity, feeling like I'm not as recognized as I should be or like I'm not as accomplished as I really ought to be or, or just not getting what I deserve, I am still putting me in the center of the treasure box. I'm still thinking about me too much and I'm not honoring the Lord. So Christians, as we start thinking about the attributes that will, will tell us that we're walking worthy of the calling, the first is a lowliness of mind that says God is the greatest, God is the center, and that same lowliness of mind will help us to be kind and gracious to others and not to demand our preferences and our rights. And I will tell you that the only way that you will develop that kind of humility is when you focus all of your energy and all of your hope on the glory of Jesus Christ. You magnify Jesus, you will not magnify self. You magnify self, you cannot magnify Jesus. It's just that simple. Second point, gentleness. The second attribute for a unifying character is gentleness. The Greek word here has to do with a mildness in how one behaves or treats others, a mildness. And this is repeatedly found in New Testament lists of godly Christian attributes. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the word for gentleness is a very close cousin to the word Jesus uses in the Beatitudes when he says to us, blessed are the meek. The idea of gentleness, by the way, is not one of weakness. A person can be very strong and very uncompromising and gentle at the same time. A meek person, a gentle person, has power, but keeps their power under control. Picture, if you will, a war horse. Big old, strong, 1,800 pounds of animal. That thing is a lot bigger and a lot stronger than the man riding it, right? You ever seen a man ride a horse who was stronger than the horse? No. But that horse, because of its training, because of its disposition, it doesn't use all of its strength whenever it feels like it. Instead, the horse responds to the command of the rider. The horse has great power. Great power, but keeps its power under control. So I guess again we ask, are you gentle? 
If you're gentle, it looks like Jesus. What did the Savior say to us in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is gentle with us. Is that not true that Jesus has been gentle with you? (laughs) Jesus was gentle in his ministry. Think of all the power Jesus had at his disposal that he did not use while he walked the earth. But for the sake of Jesus' mission, he was gentle, controlled. Jesus did not call on his power to get everything he wanted at all times. Think about the ways in which a Christian needs to be gentle. How do we need to be gentle in our lives? That's a good question, right? What would you say is an area in the life of almost any Christian where we need to learn to be gentle? Give me your best guess. (laughs) Be sure. Yep. Marriage, children. How about just the words that come out of your mouth? How you speak? How do you speak when you see something that you think is wrong or which displeases you. Now be careful. I'm not at all saying that we allow sin to go unchecked. But when you see a brother or sister in sin, how do you treat them? Are you able to speak the truth in love? Are you able to confront people with kindness? Or do you, the moment you have the opportunity, fire all of your guns? By the way, this is also probably true online. When you see someone writing something that you disagree with, how do you react? Do, do, you, do you have to grab the keyboard and unload? Or can you temper your correction with, with kindness and grace, believing the best of people you know are brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, again, I'm not saying everybody on the net who claims Christ is a believer, but a lot of the times it's people we know. Do you seek, when you write things, to help people in what you write? Or are you just looking to score points with people that you know agree with you? Do you communicate to help or to win? Take a step back away from the idea of confronting sin I mean that's fine but how do you talk when something just doesn't go the way you want it to maybe maybe you don't like a particular song we sing on a Sunday morning maybe you don't like the way that a person in the room dresses maybe you have felt slighted by somebody because they did something and didn't include you Maybe your spouse doesn't give you all the attention or the praise or the the help you think you deserve. How do you speak? Whether it's talking to them or about them, what is the tone? Is the tone marked by gentleness? Do you control the power of your tongue? Because that's what gentleness is, controlling power, not unleashing all the power you have at your disposal. Or are you someone who unleashes all his or her fury? 
Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of, want to guess what the word is? Two of you know it, I've heard it. Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In Philippians 2, 1 to 4, we said we're, We're supposed to consider others more important than ourselves. Galatians 6, we see that we are to work to restore wayward brethren, not with harsh treatment, but in gentleness. There is something that ought to mark the way that we talk with each other and about each other. There is something that is to mark the way we treat each other that should be characterized as humble and gentle. Now, now before we go forward here, we've got more to do. Please remember this. This is part of walking in a manner worthy of your calling. This is not me being a soft-hearted, spineless, wimpy weakling that just wants everybody to be nice. This is the word of God commanding you and me to live in a manner that honors the Savior who gave his life for us. And right out of the gate, the word of God, when it calls you to walk and live in a manner worthy of the Savior who saved you, it says you put on humility and gentleness in the church. You cannot escape this command. Christian, examine yourself. Examine your focus. Examine how you talk about people. Examine how you talk to people. Are you humble are you gentle if not you better look really strongly to jesus look strongly at the gospel let the word of god remind you that you are not greater than anybody else around you let the word of god remind you that jesus christ is the center the greatest the purpose And remember that as you speak of the people around you or you speak to the people around you, you are dealing with people who Jesus loves as much as he loves you, who are worth just as much as you, whose hopes and desires and preferences are as important as are yours. Third, patience. Still with me? Okay. Fun so far, isn't it? Gentleness, you know, one of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kinds of good people, gentleness. Patience is in that list though too, isn't it? Literally the word here for patience is long-suffering. It looks like Jesus. It's part of walking worthy of the call. To be patient is to endure for a time hard things. Bible talks about God being patient with us, enduring our failings and sins without destroying us immediately for them. You're glad that God's patient with you, right? Many people talk about Job as patient. He endured hardship without ultimately losing his faith. The opposite, I would say, of patience for us to consider would be maybe being quick-tempered, long-suffering, quick-tempered. Patient people, we, we, we don't, you don't have to get your way right away. A patient person can wait. A patient person, 
A patient person can help others to change slowly over time. But a quick-tempered person demands things to be just right, right now. A quick-tempered person does not endure, but immediately complains, immediately criticizes, immediately demands relief for any discomfort or repayment for any and every loss. And what's the cure for impatience? I would say that again, it's a look at the gospel. It's chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. How patient has the Lord been with you, sinner? Do you recognize it? When have you ever lived up to the demand of God that you be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? How often have you taken three steps forward only to take two steps back? How often have you taken one step forward only to take three steps back? But do you not love that God is patient with you, gently working with you over the years, not thrashing you the first time you mess up the least little thing? When you think of the grace of God on your life, you should be able to be far more patient with other people around you. I mean, if God can love you, not just tolerate you, but love you, how much more should you as a sinner be able to be patient with fellow sinners? Fourth, bearing with one another in love. Fourth, bearing with one another in love. Very similar to patience, by the way. Like the long-suffering we just saw, bearing with includes putting up with people, tolerating each other, even when we're not always making things easy on one another. I, I want to let you guys in on a little secret, okay? I, I might even not put this on the internet because I don't know that I want everyone to know this one. We're not all the same. Our likes and our dislikes are not the same. Our senses of humor are not the same. And sometimes we're going to find that as we live together in the body of Christ, we will stretch one another's patience. All right. Amen. Now, I'm going to give you another secret. This is harder to believe. From time to time in the past, I have managed to get on people's nerves. No, no, really, it's true. Don't, don't argue with me about this one. Sometimes a thing that I've said or the way that I said it has been off-putting to someone. It might just be my personality is obnoxious to people. It might be my style of communicating. It might be a host of other things. But the fact is, no matter what a delight my wife thinks I am, <laughs> it doesn't always come across that way to everybody else. I'm not saying I understand this. I just know it's true. And guess what? If you live long in this life, you're going to find that you also have traits in your personality that are hard for other people to deal with. You, even you, will have people who don't like you. Now, if we are going to live as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are going to have to learn 
to bear with one another. We're going to learn to put up with the differences that we have, and we have to learn to do this, it says in the word of God, with love. The biblical word for love there is agape. It's the love most commonly associated with God and how God loves us. It is a, it's a commitment to the good of other people that is not based on what they can do for you. So here, begin to ask yourself a simple question. How well do you love others in the church? How well do you love others who are different from you? If you love art and creativity, how well do you get along with the athletes and the outdoorsmen? If you love camping and hiking, how well do you get along with the video gamers? If you're a deep thinker and a heavy studier, how well do you love those who struggle to read anything at all? If you are, and some of you are, a little more tightly wound, how well do you deal with the people that have a little bit more of a free sense of humor? We are all to bear with one another. We are to love one another. And this is character that fits the calling to which we're called in Christ. This stuff matters greatly and it must be a thing toward which we strive as Christians. Do you get it? By the way, if I just labeled any of your personalities, I'm not picking on you. <laughs> Fifth, eager for unity. Eager for unity. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here Paul wraps up the list that he's given us with an attitude that undergirds everything that we've said. A believer walking worthy of the calling is a person who develops in himself or herself an eagerness to maintain unity in the church. Now, the word eager indicates a haste, a, a quickness. You might say that this attribute is that you are in a hurry to guard the unity of the church. Do you see a threat in the body? Do you see a problem that could divide people unnecessarily? Run. Do not walk, but run to fix the problem. If you love the Lord, you will develop an eagerness to guard the unity of the church. There is to be in the church a bond of peace. Jesus himself told us that the peacemakers are blessed, right? When you think about serving as the people of God in the local congregation, then you should develop for yourself a hunger for making peace with others in the body. Now, I want to be cautious again. I am not in any way suggesting that we compromise significant biblical doctrine for the sake of a false pretend peace. That does not honor the Lord. We cannot turn our backs on biblical definitions of things like marriage or, or humanity or the gospel. We can't ignore those things for the sake of pretending to have unity because it says we are to have unity in the spirit. And the unity of the spirit is bound in the scriptures that the spirit inspired. If somebody denies a key doctrine of scripture, we cannot have unity with them until they repent. But,
just be honest, friends. Just me and you and the internet's probably not listening. When you think about most local church conflicts, how many of them are actually caused by significant doctrinal disagreement? It does happen from time to time, but it is far more likely that people argue and fuss and fight and divide over something far less noble than essential biblical truth. James 4 verses 1 and 2 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Wouldn't you like to know? Is it not this? Oh, he's going to answer. That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Ooh, I didn't like that, James. But isn't that most often our issue? I get mad at you because you say something I don't like. In a way I don't like. I get mad at you because I want you to do things my way. And for some reason, you can't see that my way is obviously the best way ever thought of by men. (laughs) People fight with each other because we want admiration from each other. We want affection from each other. We want to be honored by others. We fight because we're jealous. We fight because we're selfish. We fight because we have ourselves as our own idols and we demand in our hearts that people bow down to us. But a true follower of Jesus is eager, is in a hurry to protect the unity of the church and that means that you are slow to take offense. And it means that when we perceive we have given offense, we are swift to seek reconciliation. Which, by the way, every one of you who's a member of this church covenanted to do that very thing. Now, there's a lot more that could be said here. John MacArthur says that when your pastor says there's a lot more that could be said here, he's at the end of his material. Uh, There is a lot more here. But I think... Wouldn't you agree that we've got enough to think about for one day? As we close, let's think again about why this matters. God showed us the gospel in chapters 1 through 3 of this book. We are separate people. We're even separate people groups who have been saved by Jesus Christ. We're being made into one new family, one new household, one new holy temple to the Lord. The glorious plan of salvation in Jesus is so magnificent that twice Paul expresses prayers that the people would have divine empowerment so they could understand how wonderful it is. Do you love the gospel? Do do you love the Savior? Are you amazed by the grace of God? Have you turned from sin and believed in Jesus and come to him for salvation? And if you haven't, by the way, if you haven't come to Jesus, I invite you, come to Jesus and find the grace of God today. He will save your soul if you turn from sin and trust in him. But if you have come to Jesus, walk in a manner worthy of this amazing calling. And how do we walk worthy of the calling? In Simple Truth Church, we begin to walk worthy of the calling by developing character traits that bring about unity 
in the church. Pray, repent. Never compromise the word, but develop the humility, the gentleness, and the passion for unity that will display the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in his local church. Let's pray together. Lord God, you know how much we need this word. You know how guilty we are of sinning against you. You know how often our ways would not be ways of Christian unity. Lord, I would ask you to make this body walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called by growing us in the character that clings to the word without ever letting go and because of the gospel reflects gentleness, patience, kindness, meekness, humility, the ability to put up with each other, the eagerness to maintain unity. God, would you do that for us? Show us your goodness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.